This program is sponsored by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students and faculty aren't just ready for change at the Scripps College, they're hungry for it. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Bassam Haddad, the Director of Middle East and Islamic Studies program at George Mason University. He's also part of the core faculty there in philosophy, politics, and economics. He also is working on his second book about Syria and its internal struggles. Dr. Haddad talks with us about the armed struggles in Syria, especially since the defeat of ISIS and the continuing struggles in this war-torn country. Can you explain why the situation in Syria is so confusing to the to anybody outside? First, thank you for having me. I am uh, delighted to be able to speak on this topic, and I uh, would like to address what you asked by saying something a little different, and that is sure. if you are actually uh, following the news on Syria, and the more you follow the news on Syria, in fact, you actually become more confused. So if you are confused, uh, I always say it's probably because you're following the news. Uh, Those who do not follow probably have a sort of um, uh, a classical view of the situation where they understand there's an uprising against dictatorship, which which is exactly correct uh, in terms of the basic uh, uh, narrative. But it actually became much more so uh, than that, uh, it will, uh, uh, you know, might surprise uh, people that the tra- trajectory of the Syrian uprising actually uh, is one of the more cautionary uh, trajectories of, of uprisings and revolutions, not because the uprising was not legitimate. It was perfectly legitimate and kind of uh, uh, late, if you will, because of the uh, uh, 40-some-odd years of dictatorship. But it's because of what happened to the uprising as a function of the meddling of various regional and international players on all sides uh, who effectively hijacked the uprising and turned it into a proxy war that serves the interests of uh, state and non-state actors that are supporting uh, either of the sides. Uh, of course, the regime on the one hand and the opposition or oppositions with an S on the other hand. And of course, you have the third uh, player in the boxing ring, which made things even more complicated, which is ISIS. Uh, a group that was not interested in a revolution against dictatorship and for the purposes of democracy, but interested in territorial uh, gains uh, across Syria and Iraq to uh, elect its own uh, version of a state called a caliphate or uh, Islamic state. So once ISIS entered, and that was about 2013, is that uh, about the time? It, it, it basically had uh, a presence in uh, Iraq, and then uh, we basically have a number of developments where the uh, Syrian border, the border Syrian border, allowed the entry of what was called the Islamic State in Iraq into Syria with the early uh, potential 
uh, alliances with Jabhat al-Nusra, which is an al-Qaeda-affiliated group in Syria, uh, that didn't go very well. And then, of course, uh, the Islamic State in Syria and al-Sham or ISIS uh, emerged out of this uh, uh, sort of uh, experience uh, between 2013 and 2014. And ISIS in in, in Syria uh, meant to take over territory. It wasn't just an ideological uh, movement. It was actually a territory movement. Absolutely. And this is what distinguishes ISIS from, say, al-Qaeda. Uh, given that ISIS actually had territorial aims, it wanted to establish a state of sorts uh, with communities, uh, with uh, the tra- all the trappings of a, of a state, from a judiciary to uh, a bureaucracy uh, and so on and so forth, and of course an army. And it aimed to establish its state in both Syria and Iraq. And in fact, at some point, uh, ISIS controlled uh, about 30% of Iraq and close to 45% uh, of Syria. And we are talking here mostly about uh, non-metropolitan cities uh, because ISIS was uh, better equipped to seize and control non-metropolitan cities as a function of the existence of uh, more equipped armies in, in metropolitan cities, but also as a function of the social structure in more rural areas that was uh, more susceptible to uh, controlled by a group like ISIS with its own ideology and its own conservatism socially and otherwise. And Mosul became the sort of a focal point of ISIS, correct? And the center? And the only city that actually is a full-fledged metropolitan city in either of these two countries that ISIS was able to seize. And it actually seized it sort of uh, in, a, in an odd way because there was no battle really in Mosul. They just uh, almost like walked in. And that was a function of uh, the dissatisfaction that people in Mosul had with the government on the one hand uh, and uh, the lack of readiness of the uh, troops or the um, uh, official presence of the Iraqi government in Mosul. And ISIS was able to walk in without uh, uh, much of a battle. And that became, in 2014, the uh, most significant gain, territorial gain, uh, in terms of metropolitan areas for ISIS, besides its, uh, uh, if you will, its wilaya or its uh, statelet in Raqqa, in uh, rural north uh, Syria. So let's summarize to this point, and then then we'll go on. But we had the Assad regime uh, trying to stay in power against multiple insurrections of of rebels that weren't necessarily consolidated in one force. Then we had the uh, ISIS coming in. Uh, disrupting that battle between those two entities, interjecting a third entity into into this conflict. Now ISIS allegedly has been pushed out. Were they pushed out by the sort of a ceasefire? Or uh, how did ISIS get pushed out while the other two were still battling? 
let me start from the beginning, perhaps. Please. And, and that's always uh, a thing when one talks about Syria. You get involved into the more, uh, 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 so to speak, uh, juicy or, 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 or uh, you know, um, uh, uh, if you will, exciting details. And then we have to go back to the beginning. The uh, narrative about Syria, of course, is always contested. There are no narratives on Syria that are not contested. What I would like to share with you are some of the basic narratives that are very difficult to to contest, even by uh, differing opinions. Uh, And and they will still be contested to an extent. So the most important thing I think we should recognize about the Syrian situation is that Syria has been ruled by uh, a dictatorship since 1970 or 1963, depending on when you want to start the clock, but in all cases for some four to five decades. And it doesn't mean that the pre-dictatorship era was rosy. It just means that we have a particular sort of dictatorship under a particular party that ruled since 1963 and then 1970, respectively, when Assad Sr. took over. The background, this background, uh, in my view, is the context within which everything happens. After 40 years of dictatorship, uh, we cannot expect uh, an uprising of angels. We cannot expect uh, allies of of the dictatorship to actually be uh, on the sidelines. They will actually intervene. We cannot expect that the opposition to this dictatorship is going to be supported also by, uh, if you will, angelic state actors or non-state actors. So the situation from the very beginning has been set up to attract problematic allies, supporters, and uh, as we have seen, uh, foreign fighters with the case of uh, ISIS and other groups. So we have a situation where a legitimate uprising emerged in Syria in 2011, very much instigated by the uprisings and somewhat successful uh, quick results in Tunisia and Egypt. This uprising was civilian in character, was was peaceful, uh, and however, those early days and weeks of the uprising, in some in some cases months, were disrupted by a number of uh, developments. The first development that disrupted this legitimate uprising against dictatorship, which then, as I shared earlier, uh, was transformed into some sort of a proxy war, right. uh, was the weaponization of the uprising, the militarization of the uprising, which uh, changed the character of uh, the situation and provided an already brutal regime that was uh, content to crush even civilian protesters' uh, voices was more, even more intent on doing so and went uh, actually the extra mile with this justification that the uh, uprising is not civil or civilian. Uh, and that began to change the character of the uprising and change the conflict from uh, an uprising against dictatorship to somewhat of a of a war with uh, a significant number of people on the side of of the uprising forming various groups that became quickly um, uh, empowered not just militarily but also politically from the outside right and that created uh, a, a warlike situation 
that uh, gave uh, a carte blanche uh, from the regime's perspective to crack down even more brutally on the uh, uh, protesters as well as, of course, the uh, rebel armies. That transformed uh, the uh, context from an uprising against dictatorship to, uh, as I shared, a proxy war in which various groups uh, on both sides, supporting both sides uh, regionally, uh, were trying to uh, use this context of the Syrian uprising to transform the region or to redraw the map of the region uh, according to their own interests, each assuming that they will be uh, victors. The tragedy of the Syrian situation is that uh, there are no victors, especially several years down the line. There are only victims. And those victims, sadly, are the majority of the Syrian population that ended up uh, being exhausted by uh, what was going on on all sides, not necessarily uh, supporting the area or the uh, leadership within which uh, they live because territorial, territorially they were confined to a particular uh, area and uh, you loot for where you're at uh, for the most part unless you're able to flee or become a refugee like uh, most Syrians. Uh, the idea here is that the exhaustion of the majority of Syrians um, made them step back, actually, from the conflict, mm-hmm. not not in a neutral way. Uh, I believe that the majority of Syrians, the overwhelming majority of Syrians, want a change in Syria, want a removal of this uh, regime. What became more complex and that's what a lot of people sometimes miss, is that the alternatives were becoming less and less desirable. It is not that the regime became more attractive. It's that the alternatives, given what was happening on the ground, the nature of the rebel force was changed from a civilian uh, military uh, rebel force that wanted a more progressive alternative to a rebel force that actually was bent on uh, formulas that didn't necessarily meet the aspirations of the revolutionaries, the original revolutionaries in Syria. Within that context, uh, various national, uh, sorry, various um, uh, actors, Mm -hmm. state actors and non-state actors, locally, regionally, and internationally, try to take advantage of this uh, mess to basically settle their own scores and to serve their own interests, whether it was the pro-opposition camp uh, represented by countries such as Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Turkey, and the United States, or whether it is the pro-regime camps represented by Iran, uh, Russia, Hezbollah, and when it came to diplomatic relations, China. So we ended up producing a... uh, Uh, a disillusionment among most of Syrians as to uh, who to support, not because, again, not because of the uh, uh, lack of clarity that the regime needs to go, but because uh, the lack of certainty that this alternative on the ground is the way to go. And this this, uh, uprising, this civil uprising, uh, became an international conflict and that internationalism uh, gave people wonder what interests were going to prevail and what countries were going to interfere correct absolutely and that is that is the tragedy we are actually encountering 
uh, year after year and today. So the, if you want to look at the um, uh, larger context, if we, mm-hmm. if we ha- want to establish a bird's eye view, we find that the uh, Syrian uprising that started in March 2013 has gone through uh, a couple of phases, and each of these phases includes various stages. The first stage was, as I shared, a, a civilian uprising, which was transformed into a militarized uh, uprising and then into a proxy war. Uh, So these represent stages within the first phase that ended in December 2016 when the regime was able to seize the entire city of Aleppo from the rebels, which constituted the seizing of all major metropolitan cities by the regime or retaking uh, whatever language one wants to use, because the regime, in fact, did control it uh, uh, beforehand, of course. The point is here that that ended, uh, in my view, uh, the war for Syria. In other words, those who wanted to remove the regime for good or for ill in terms of their own intentions, whether they really cared about the Syrian people or not, but wanted to remove the regime for one reason or another. Uh, That signaled the end of that uh, goal or the end of that objective because the regime was able to control most of what is called useful Syria or Surya al-Mufida by December 2016. The second phase is what started after this process, which is basically we moved from a war over Syria mm-hmm. to a number of smaller wars within Syria that really represent at least a couple of goals, either settling scores for certain countries like Turkey with its uh, war against the Kurds, or retaking what is left of Syria by the regime. These constitute the two major dynamics today in Syria, even though there are other dynamics at work. Uh, And what made those dynamics dominant, especially today in 2018, frankly, is the dramatic degradation of ISIS uh, over the past year, which freed up most players who actually were together, even though they opposed each other on everything else, they actually worked together as in uh, maybe I shouldn't say work together, but they actually all, all had a goal of degrading ISIS. And that were, was a common enemy. That was a common enemy, and they had a similar uh, a position. Even if, in my view, uh, whether it's the Americans or the Syrian regime or the Iranians or Russians uh, or the opposition, at least uh, in some cases, there is some sort of a utility for leaving ISIS um, uh, degraded but not completely destroyed because that could be used as a card in various situations down the line. And and, and this is a speculation, but th- th- there there is enough reason to believe that there isn't an intent to completely root out ISIS from the very small remaining parts of Syria. And that represents the second stage, the second phase of the Syrian uprising whereby we no longer have a war to take over uh, the central government of Syria, at least nothing uh, extant and evident, right. and more uh, smaller fragmented wars that represent uh, the interests of various countries in uh, using Syria to settle scores or to actually prevent uh, further development of uh, conflict or uh, threat in the case of Turkey and the Kurds. Turkey's invasion and incursion into Syria 
uh, t- happening today in the city of Afrin is meant to basically um, dismantle uh, and defeat the YPG, a Kurdish movement that is accused of being connected to the KPP, which is the Kurdish Workers' Party, a separatist uh, party with which the Turks have been at war for many, many years. And it accuses both of them by association as being terrorist groups. Uh, Turkey is trying to do this because it wants to secure its southern border and uh, is now in conflict with other groups and uh, actors that uh, view this as a a violation of sovereignty, including the Syrian regime, whose militias or pro-regime militias are now within this fight. So we have a very complex terrain in that regard, and it's actually proceeding uh, at uh, very high losses, of course, on the side of the Kurds in Afrin, but also on the side of the Turks who were not able to push forth as fast as they wanted. The regime, on the other hand, is trying to retake various parts of Syria that have been uh, lost to the rebels over the past several years. And we see the tragedy unfold today in uh, eastern Damascus, in the Ghouta region, where the regime and the Russians are pummeling the region of some 380,000 people uh, that have been besieged for years. Uh, In response, they claim to various rockets that are sent into Damascus and uh, claims about the proliferation of terrorist groups inside. Of course, all states name uh, terrorists as as the enemy or the enemy becomes terroristic, um, irrespective of the veracity. Uh, And that is one uh, or the first attempt right now to, after Aleppo, to, uh, to retake one of several major uh, strategic areas. Ghouta is uh, uh, now uh, has now uh, suffered the death of about uh, six to seven hundred innocent. Uh, most, I mean, mostly civilians. Even though the regime claims they are mostly military personnel or uh, militia militia fighters, and it seems that the next step in this uh, uh, campaign will be the uh, hotbed of the uh, rebel opposition that is controlled by Tahrir al-Sham in the north, uh, and that's the Idlib province, uh, where uh, it it is said that Ghouta uh, is basically the uh, either training ground or the first step before getting to that uh, region, because this is the only uh, major stronghold of the opposition that is well-equipped in terms of uh, military might, um, and then, of course, uh, other parts of the country uh, seem to be in the sights of the Syrian regime, including the south, which is actually pretty much stable as a function of the lack of one military authority controlling uh, that region. There are, it's, it's actually a coalition and it's confined or bound by various uh, treaties and agreements mm-hmm. made with Jordan, Syria, uh, Israel as well. Uh, in terms of what kind of movements can, movements can happen there. And of course, then you have the big question that is the latent potential conflict uh, between the Syrian regime and the Kurds, which who have been frenemies. They've been uh, friends at certain points, fighting similar enemies, and they actually are in opposition uh, structurally and ideologically. But they haven't really uh, entered into a full-fledged war And one of the reasons has to do with economics, uh, given that the Kurds control more than 65% of oil fields now in Syria. We'll be back after this message. 
At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. What you've described really helps us, I think, understand the regionalism here and the historical dynamics. It seems, though, to an outsider that the American foreign policy, as it relates to Syria, has been one that's in flux. It, it's confusing. It's, it's fragmented. Is, is that a correct characterization? From the point of view of uh, people living in the United States, like you and me, it might seem that there is hesitation. It might seem that there is um, a kind of confusion as to what to do about Syria. Uh, but in reality, uh, the, the confusion is not all that much. Okay. The uh, appearance of confusion actually is evident. Yes, it's palpable. But in reality, the United States uh, under the Obama administration, and interestingly under the uh, Trump administration, if you notice, there hasn't been a dramatic change in actual policy on Syria. No. <laughs> There's been rhetoric that spoke of difference. But in reality... Uh, states operate based on national interests, usually, uh, that are rather stable. And the single most important point for the American administration has always been uh, that the price in Syria is not that high, on the one hand. So we're not looking at a, 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 a uh, conflict where the uh, returns or the rewards are evident, and the costs can be minimized. That's a central uh, component of uh, the United States' position on Syria. Another component, uh, of course, has to do with the extent to which uh, the American public and, of course, the uh, U.S. military and U.S. government is willing to go into a full-fledged war generally. And that is has, of course, been uh, precipitated by the problems that took place uh, in Iraq. And, of course, the, when we talk about our problems, of course, we are in a way, <laughs> you know, n not recognizing the, the catastrophe that befell Iraqis themselves. Right. But what the U.S. went through in Iraq has actually tempered our appetite for war, whether it was with Syria in 2005 when some were calling for striking Syria or the ongoing uh, appetite for 
uh, war with Iran where there is there 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 always will be calls but you know uh, the administration even this administration uh, with with a very blunt rhetoric is uh, actually you know treading carefully on the question of war so this second issue of appetite for war in the region or full-fledged war is also not high the third is a combined factor that uh, allows us to understand U.S. F- foreign policy over and above the zigzagging of rhetoric is the combination of the two in recognizing the context in Syria. The simple fact is, and that's part of the reason why the uprising was not successful, is that m- all the supporters, if not most of the supporters of the Syrian uprising, the uprising for democracy, are for the most part not genuine supporters of an uprising for democracy. If anything, they were betting on removing the regime for purposes that served their interests. The coincidence of wanting to remove a dictatorship with the aspirations of the overwhelming majority of Syrians created an alliance that was very fragile between the uprising, if you will, and the external forces. However, what the United States... uh, administration, the previous administration recognized, is that this fight, this conflict for the regime and its allies is an existential conflict, whereas Mm -hmm. for the supporters of the uprising, it's a strategic conflict from which they could actually withdraw at any moment when the threat and the danger becomes higher than a particular threshold, which is exactly what happened in the case of Qatar and Saudi Arabia, who recently were actually arguing amongst each other who messed up with dealing with Syria and the Syrian rebels who weaponized which groups and radicalized the situation in Syria or the uprising. It became a point of conflict between those two, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Absolutely, and and they both withdraw their, uh, you know, ample support uh, to a large extent, not completely. Uh, Turkey no longer uh, was willing to make its border open and porous to incoming fighters from which many thousands of fighters came to fight, quote unquote, the good fight and got into its own trouble with uh, the Islamists or with the um, with ISIS who began to blow things up in Turkey and Turkey therefore hit the brakes on its rhetoric against the Syrian regime and its facilitation of various forces fighting the regime state or non-state actors, as well as individual foreign fighters, and of course became more, as you shared, involved with the Kurdish situation. And the U.S., of course, has no stake compared to, for instance, Iran, Hezbollah, and the Russians, who actually uh, went in full force and did what the United States was not necessarily willing to do in terms of going all out vis-a-vis ISIS, even though the Russians also did this uh, also as a cover to help the regime root out uh, the remaining rebels in the name of fighting terrorism, not distinguishing between uh, groups that they don't like that are against the regime and groups that they don't like, like ISIS. That Whether are, you're ISIS yeah. or a rebel, either one, you're an enemy of the state, so you're and, in the same. Uh, but there was some sort of manipulation on the part, yeah. of, uh, on the, part of the Russians, uh, whereby they grouped these uh, movements together, like Jabhat al-Nusra, that was mostly Syrian, and fighting the regime, as opposed to ISIS, that is significantly non-Syrian and not interested in the revolution in Syria, 
more interested in its territorial uh, control in Iraq and Syria and creating a state of its own that goes against um, li- almost literally most of what the rebels want, even the fighting rebels. So in, in a way, in a way uh, the American uh, readiness for anything from uh, establishing a no-fly zone to uh, committing to significant troops on the ground, because there obviously are some troops on the ground, uh, is extremely low within the Obama administration for those three reasons I mentioned, and continue to be low under Trump, with the one exception, and that is, should there be an event that might spin things out of control in Syria, the Trump administration will be more likely to respond in ways that perhaps the Obama administration would not. If we look at the country, uh, at least from the news clippings that we see and from the newscasts that we see, Syria is destroyed. Uh, the infrastructures, the buildings, the, there's widespread damage, at least in some of the, the cities and some of the areas where they were fighting. How will that be rebuilt and who will help pay the bill to have it rebuilt? Um, I recently uh, gave a talk at both UCLA and George Mason University precisely about this question, uh, the question of reconstruction, rebuilding, reconciliation, potential peace. And uh, the unfortunate fact is that the problem in Syria Uh, as opposed to what many believe, uh, especially in the international community who are looking for lucrative entry points into Syria. The unfortunate fact is that the problem in Syria is not one of destruction. I mean, that is a component of the problem, but it is wrapped up in profound political rivalries and decades of repression and various other factors that make the resolution not simply one of reconstruction. The destruction is evident. Uh, besides the uh, more than 400,000 Syrians killed, uh, we have, of course, more than uh, a million uh, injured uh, severely. We have uh, hundreds of thousands of disabled Syrians And we have the destruction of uh, at least a third of the infrastructure and the destruction of various institutions of learning, various uh, healthcare centers and hospitals, thanks to the uh, purposeful regime bombing and Russian bombing for the most part, and for the most part in rebel held areas. We have uh, more than half of the Syrian population, a population of about 24 million displaced, um, some uh, about half or a little bit, a little bit less than half uh, displaced from Syria to other countries, including Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, and various other countries like Egypt, Europe, and so on. And then the rest are internally displaced. We also have a uh, considerable amount of damage that is not concrete and um, uh, tangible that a lot of people don't talk about. And that is a very destructive uh, development in Syria. The trauma that has affected all Syrians, the psychological issues that, you know, we talk here about 
our own tragedies, our small tragedies, like the high school shootings. And you can imagine the trauma of some of these people who didn't even witness firsthand what happened. And we con- we get concerned about them and we put their pictures on CNN and we talk to these people who are traumatized by just being in the territory of the school when this happened. Right. So you can imagine after seven years of death and destruction, the extent of the trauma in Syria. And then there are developmental consequences. For seven years, many people did not have the proper education in a country that is used to actually having almost full literacy. So we have seven years blacked out from the lives of many people, not all, because schools continue to operate here and there uh, in various places. Um, The working force, imagine the extent to which Syria lost a, a workforce with skills who are now actually doing a good job in places like Germany and uh, and elsewhere uh, in terms of being able to use their skills. So Syria now is bereft of all sorts of um, of dignity and resources. So we have a, a, a damage that is profound. The rebuilding, however, cannot continue or even start properly without some form of establishing um, uh, n- n- not peace even, but uh, territorial integrity. Uh, there are at least four major semi-sovereign or sovereign divisions in Syria. The regime, which has the largest portion now. The Kurds, the Kurds who have the second largest portion in most of northern and northwest Syria, northeast Syria. And then, of course, the opposition who have some strongholds in the north, in Idlib, and around Damascus and some in the south. Um, and then, of course, ISIS, which is uh, in mostly in eastern Syria in, in uh, smaller patches of land. And they're now trying to, if you will, close their businesses and smuggle out weapons, people, and money, cash. Um, without having some sort of territorial integrity, the rebuilding is going to be fragmented um, and it will actually not serve the average Syrian. It is, in fact, uh, starting in Syria, in the Syrian regime-controlled territories where they are actually engaged in heavy reconstruction. But this reconstruction does not seem to be aimed on the account of the best analysts and field researchers to actually serve those Syrians who lost their lives and their homes. It is actually a reconstruction that is more aimed at propping up the state and basically providing uh, uh, housing for people who can afford uh, this sort of housing. And it is tragic that most of the people who lost their houses and who are are displaced within and outside Syria will not be able actually to come back to those areas. If there is a plan uh, to rebuild Syria, whether it is the World Bank or the IMF support, whether it is the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, the Americans, and various other international institutions like the UN, UN and UNDP and so on, the question is, who will they make these deals with? If it's the regime, then the rebuilding will happen according to the interests of the regime and its immediate partners, not according to the interests of most Syrians who have lost their lives and their homes. Um, if it is others... Well, one worries, how long will these others be in their place? Like the rebels the at Tahrir al-Sham, for instance, in northern Syria, who is not exactly uh, admired by most Syrians. 
uh, it, it becomes un- untenable. The Kurds, they have a very similar uh, precarious future. Of course, ISIS is not, is not even a contender. So the best case scenario, which is the regime, yields uh, undesirable results. And then you go down from there. You've got a new book coming out shortly, the, the second book that you've written about this area. Um, uh, I, I can't claim that I've written it completely. I am uh, every time I try to finalize what needs to be part of this uh, right. uh, document, uh, things develop and and not small things either. So uh, I tried from 2013 to finalize things, and then ISIS emerged. Of course, I was I was both uh, busy enough and and lucky enough to not have finished it. <laughs> right. Um, so I am working on now on uh, my first book was on the collusion between the regime and big business moguls in Syria, a collusion that actually uh, uh, led to the deterioration of the Syrian economy and to the dramatic social polarization in Syria, which was the, the background to the uprising. My second uh, book is the continuation of the story that starts with the first 10 years of uh, Bashar Assad's rule starting in 2000 that demonstrates the extent to which uh, uh, that rule uh, drove discontent to a higher degree and set the stage uh, in very tangible ways for uh, an uprising that was long overdue to begin with. And it continues to address the dynamics of this of the uh, Syrian uprising by first looking at why is it that it is so complex, even more complex than the other uprisings uh, around uh, the same region in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, and Bahrain, and looks at the pivotal role, regional role of Syria and how it is um, at the center of various conflicts uh, simultaneously, local, regional, and international, and then goes to address uh, the transformation of the uprising into something that doesn't uh, any longer resemble the original sentiments of the uprising and addresses the driving uh, or the drivers for the prolongation of the uprising, including what is called the war economy from which all rebels benefit and from which all fighters benefit and all states benefit, which sort of explains to an extent uh, why there is very little interest locally and regionally in ending the war because that is an economy that has benefited various players uh, who are not really interested in revolution on all sides. And uh, it addresses the dynamics of the uprising in the sense that it allows us to understand the formation, reformation, and breakdown of various uh, coalitions and groups among the opposition. What explains this roller coaster? of uh, emergence and disappearance and breakdown of groups within the opposition instead of doing what a lot of think tank papers do or a lot of analysis does sometimes or news which is basically follow this or that group and how they emerge and how they coalesced and then how they broke down I try to develop a framework to understand uh, what governs these processes uh, the, the larger picture that governs these processes so that we could link pre-2011 Syria with the dynamics of the uprising itself locally and the interest of regional and international players that come together in uh, basically providing the incentive structure for formation and breakdown of these various coalition groups. And then ends with this discussion of uh, reconstruction 
basically, a, in my view, it's it's a bit of a farce. At the same time, that you cannot not reconstruct, right? So right. I am not critiquing the reconstruction for the for the purpose of rebuilding hospitals and schools and homes. What I am uh, concerned about is that uh, this has become an opportunity uh, for capital gain. This has become an opportunity for increasing revenue of various actors. Uh, and this has become an opportunity to um, replenish state coffers in some ways and support various international allies and enemies uh, by offering them a, a, a piece of the pie. And graft and corruption is along the way, I'm sure. That is a constant, unfortunately. And, and uh, the bottom line is that after this tragedy of more than uh, seven years soon, this month actually, uh, we will uh, not be serving the Syrian people even after everything that I just shared in terms of damage. Uh, the reconstruction might well not serve the majority of Syrians, but serve to prolong uh, the life and security of the supposed victors. We thank you for helping us understand this very, very complicated area of the world. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your questions and this conversation. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Bassam Haddad, an expert on the struggles in Syria as well as American foreign policy towards that war-torn country. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.